This is a wonderful pleasure for, uh, to be here. Um, I feel blessed to be here with all these wonderful friends uh, that I've known for so many years and all the new friends that I'm meeting today. Uh, I want to thank Cecilia for your thoughtful introduction and I want to thank everyone in the Ibn Arbi Society for the extraordinary community that they've worked to build, and they have built, uh, over these years. Uh, the continually, continual development of the uh, journal, the symposia, which are magnificently coordinated and arranged, um, uh, the ones in the California, the ones here, the ones in New York, um, and much of my work uh, has uh, stations um, uh, that pass through uh, these symposia. And my, the history of my efforts to <coughs> translate Ibn Arbi's Tarjuman al-Ashwaq uh, were first, I first brought them out and uh, read the, the first versions in public at uh, symposium meetings of the society and um, have been working on that ever since. I wanted to start out before I go into the talk with um, a few words in the Arabic of Tarjuman al-Ashwaq from uh, the very first very short poem, and then I'll read it in the translation. And then um, my plan would be uh, to start then with a larger poem uh, that shows the process of translation, the kind of questions that I've been having that the issues of translating in different places with different editors, with different venues, trying to reach certain audiences, the choices that we have to make about how to compensate for the rhyme because, in my view, there's no way to make this poetry work with a single end rhyme at the end of every verse as it is in, in Arabic. How do we compensate for the meter? Um, most of these poems are composed in eight of the classical meters. They're very intricate. Um, to my knowledge, only one, uh, Ameri uh, one British poet and uh, uh, Wilfred Scaven Blunt, who along with Lady Blunt, were two of the great intrepid travelers, um, scholars. Um, uh, they did um, magnificent travelogues of their journeys to Arabia. And Wilfred Scaven Blunt translated the Mu'alqat, the seven most famous pre-Islamic poems, into English versions of the classical meters. Um, it was an extraordinary experiment, and I think quite interesting for us scholars to read. Um, but. Uh, it uh, has not, when I tried to read it to other audiences, they, uh, uh, they gave me a look and I stopped. 
So, um, it's, it's, um, so then the question is, how do we bring across uh, a poetic form when we're, we have to give up certain of the key features? How do we, my view is, how do we compensate for them? What, what things do we put in place? If we give up the rhyme, how do we develop an acoustics that, that uh, also attracts the reader without the rhyme? If we give up the meter, um, how do we develop that intricate dance between um, uh, tension and release that happens in metered poetry, where sometimes the meter falls right on the syntax and sometimes it seems to cut right into the syntax. And so you have this sense of tension and release. It's like a dance. And so these are some of the things uh, that I think about. Um, I also will be thinking about, for many years, the tree of water, which appeared um, in Stephen Hertenstein's talk. And I just found it um, a magnificent image and, and um, something to contemplate. I say that as I take a drink. I call this poem, The Lords of Love. I wish I knew, if they knew, whose heart they have taken. Or my heart knew which high ridge track they follow. Do you picture them safe or perishing? The Lords of Love in Love are ensnared, bewildered. Leite shi'ri hel darao ayye qalbin malaku wa fuadi lao dara ayye shi'bin salaku aturahum selimu Am turahum helaku. Hara arbabil hawa fil hawa water takabu. As many of you um, uh, who, well, almost anyone who's familiar with the Tarjaman will know that um, these three verses, which come at the beginning of the Tarjaman, in uh, the groundbreaking work of Reynold Nicholson, 1911, who published the first Arabic printed version of the Tarjaman, um, along with his own translation, and his translation of much of uh, selected parts of Ibn Arabi's own commentary on the Tarjaman. Uh, um, you will know from, from this book and others that there is a preface um, 
that Ibn Arabi gives to the Tarjumanlishwak. Um, and in that preface, he states that he was one one evening he was circumambulating the Kaaba, and these verses came to his mind. So he wanted to, so he backed, he backed off of the main paved area of the Kaaba onto the sands at the outer circle so he wouldn't disturb anyone when he voiced uh, these verses. And he said, so I voiced these verses for myself and whoever might have happened to be there and happened to have wished to hear them. He says that after I uh, voiced these verses, uh, I felt a soft hand on my shoulder, a hand is softer than silk, and I turned around and there before me was um, uh, a young lady, a jaria, a maiden, or could also be a slave, and she then proceeds to have a conversation with him uh, along the lines of, oh master, um, what was it you were saying just now? And Ibn Larbi uh, reads that first verse, um, would that I knew, etc. And she says, um, excuse me, I know you're the great master of your time, but um, isn't it strange for someone like yourself to be saying something like this? And then she gives this uh, rigorous critique of that verse. Then the second verse, then the third verse, and then really a, 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 just a tour de force critique of the fourth verse, where she basically critiques the poet for not understanding um, the, the full power what, what real love is. Because at the end, he talks about the lords of love being ensnared and bewildered. And she says, of course, echoing uh, much of the Sufi doctrine of finale or passing away, um, the one who is in love is totally gone, sent off with the other martyrs of the past, um, blown away, obliterated. What is there left of his self to be bewildered. Um, so then um, Ibn al-Arbi, um, who, by the way, throughout his works, makes an extraordinary effort to uh, relate stories of women sheikhs that he, he studied with, um, and um, uh, also uh, women um, who may be on the, in the realm of imagination, or may have been uh, concrete women who he considered to be masters of um, ma'arifa, or knowing. This uh, word that's so hard to translate into English because English doesn't have a distinction between knowledge as a more objective thing and uh, knowing as a um, more experiential um, uh, sense of uh, coming to know. Gnosis. Uh, some people use the word gnosis, um, and um, I think it's fine with a small g. Uh, a lot of people 
I get hung up on that because they start talking about Gnostics and Gnosis with a, small, with a capital G. So um, let me go on. Over these past years, uh, I, I started, let me go back, way back, to when I first encountered the Tarjamanal Ishwak. I was at University of Chicago, 1982, finishing my doctorate, um, where I met my lovely wife, Janet. And uh, I had been studying, up till that time, fairly intensively, two things that really come together in the Tarjaman. One was Ibn Arabi's Fusus uh, al-Hikam, and that led me to uh, tied in with my interest in Plotinus and Greek mysticism and other things. Um, that was being taught by Fazl Rahman, who's of Pakistani origin, got, a, got his degree in Oxford, um, went back to Pakistan. There was a controversy. We could talk about maybe the problem of opinion or right that brought, up, brought that about, but he had to leave Pakistan because people were accusing him of saying something that wasn't proper, according to Islamic uh, uh, orthodoxy. He taught in McGill and the University of Chicago. I was also studying pre-Islamic Arabic poetry with a scholar there named Yaroslav Stetkevich. And I was astonished by the, the depth, uh, the passion, um, the, um, the vividness of the imagery um, and the sense of time and space, which seems to seem to flow in different directions, um, and the sense that the poetic voice was what I call dissembling. It was always saying it, it was going to describe the beloved, but it never ended up describing the beloved in any practical sense. It, um, the way I put it was, if you took all these pre-Islamic beloveds, Maya and Layla and Nawar and Zainab and um, Kaub, and you brought them into the room and you said, which one is Zainab? People have read a thousand poems. They, I don't know which one's Zainab because it, it gives you the sense of description, but it's really an, an evocation, a vocation of uh, water, of paradise, of beautiful times, etc. So, um, I looked, at one point I looked into the Tarjaman and I was really struck by this um, combination of classical Arabic poetry and some of the um, possible mystic themes that I'd been reading. Over the years then, I um, began translating these poems. Some appeared in the journal, uh, uh, some appeared in the, the volume Stations of Desire. Um, others appeared in other uh, venues. And two years ago, or three years ago, in 2015, here at Oxford, um, I had been reading some of these poems, new translations of mine, and uh, Simone Fatal, who is the editor of Post Apollo Press, and a long and dear friend that I know from these society symposia, said, it would be nice if you ever felt like 
some publishing some poems with me. And I was really thrilled because that was like uh, something that goes, that uh, really would represent some of the experience, a lot of the experience that went into the, uh, these efforts. So we started that project, it's called Bewildered. Uh, the um, poster for Bewildered, I had sent a note to Simone saying, you know, um, uh, our dear friend Etel Adnan, who's also been um, uh, uh, with her and uh, in the meetings with, with me all these years, if she would be uh, kind enough to provide maybe a drawing or something. And she provided this astonishing uh, cover art. Um, all of that is in press. That is, all the proofreading and the edits and the design. And by the way, um, uh, Simone uh, Fatal and her designer, who's named Minu, really did a beautiful job in choosing fonts, um, time and space, really locating the poem in a book. Um, all that's been in press for a while. Um, God willing, it will come out in uh, the not too distant future. God willing and printer schedules willing. Uh, so that's probably waiting for the schedule of the printer. About three months after I talked to Simone, I received uh, a communication from the editors of the uh, Princeton University Press Lockhart uh, uh, Poetry Series in Translation, proposing that, uh, um, that I uh, send them a manuscript uh, of a complete bilingual uh, uh, Arabic, uh, English, facing page translation of all the poems in the Futuhat, um, plus the two prefaces, I'll talk about them in a minute, plus um, some commentary, I'll talk about that in a minute, and ultimately we agreed to do that, and uh, that is a much uh, more complicated publishing venture. Um, uh, it means how do you take the Arabic facing text and line it up with the English text in a way that is visual please, visually pleasing and also clear when, as in my case, you're often, often using uh, couplets, triplets, or, or for the most part, quatrains to represent each Arabic verse. Because Arabic verses, um, uh, to really represent a whole Arabic verse in English, you would need a very wide page. Um, and um, the other thing is I find that by breaking them up into quatrains or, or uh, couplets, I can use the line breaks to help recreate that tension that, between tension and release that one finds in meter. Now I'm going to try something I've never done before. In front of the world, I'm going to try to use one of these things. And I think I pushed this button. I'll try that again. Ah, something happened. Okay, so this is 
poem three, and it, there is, it illustrates some of the challenges, the many challenges involved in, um, in uh, this effort. And I wanted to use it as, as an example of the kind of things that, of course, we all think about when we try to translate anything from one language to another. Two things in particular. The Tarjuman is chalk-filled with place names. There are 66 place names in the Tarjuman. Many of them are repeated numerous times. So I don't know of many examples like this, but there's a, one passage in uh, Homer's uh, Iliad that goes through all these different places and lists them off. And so how do you bring across place names to people that really, uh, an audience that you can't assume knows these, where these places are? And more importantly, what these places mean within the poetic tradition. Because when someone says, for example, uh, where's El Kathib or where is Yalamlam, one could say, well, we think it's on this place on the map in present day Saudi Arabia, but the question is, there's lots of places in Arabia. Why did certain place names take on this thick meaning? And so that when someone in the 13th century uses them, people associate uh, all the accrued meaning uh, with them. So I'll read this in English, and then I'll stop at a couple places um, that bring up some of the decisions. Turn aside, friends, at El Kathib, past Lalai, and set out for the waters of Yelemlam. There you'll find those you'd come to know. My fast is for them, my pilgrimage, my holy days. May what happened there that day at pebble ground near Minna, Oblations Field, at Zamzam, stay with me forever. There pebble ground, my heart. May they cast their pebbles there. Offerings field, my soul. Their sacred spring, my blood. When you come to Hadjer, driver, halt. When you come to Hadjer, driver, halt the camels there for a time. Shout forth a greeting and call toward the red pavilions of Hima, a lover's greetings of longing and loss. If the greetings return, bless them and wish them peace. If they are silent, journey on to the river of Isa, where their tent, where their camels graze and white tents nestle near the mouth of the stream. Sound the names of Dad and Rabab, Fertana and Hind, Lubna and Selma. Then ask them is if there is a girl at Helba who shows you the sun in her smile. So, 
Um, this is uh, a poem that, like many of the poems in the Tarjuman, and also many of the poems of Ibn al-Arabi's exact contemporary, who is mentioned by uh, Jane Clark, I think, Ibn al-Farid. These are poems that combine the classical Arabic traditions of, of love poetry, the Nasib part of the, of the classical Qasida, or the Ghazal, which became the word that was used for a self-standing love poem. Uh, there were two kinds of ghazals, early ghazals. One you might call the passionate or martyrdom ghazal associated with Majnun Layla and numerous other figures. The other was um, what has been called the urbane ghazal, um, often more playful, sometimes uh, uh, containing a lot of flirtatious language that had um, uh, that had a lighter effect, and they're associated with uh, primarily with a poet named Omar Ibn Abi Rabia. So I just call call him the poet Omar um, uh, to uh, make clear who he was. It combines that tradition by the way, which is evoked at the end with this list of names, Dad and Rabab, Fertana and Hind, Lubna and Selma, these are all names that people would associate with um, beloveds uh, uh, of, the, um, of the ancient Arabic poetic tradition. It combines this remembrance of the lost beloved, the uh, remembrance of the stations of the lost beloved, and how she left the poet and went here and went there with the stations of the Hajj pilgrimage and the actual um, uh, rites, specific rites um, of, uh, of, the, of the pilgrimage, either the Hajj or the shorter one, the Etimar, which are both referenced in the poem. So El Khatib, uh, my understanding is it resonates back with the um, ancient Arabic uh, Nasib, the remembrance of the lost beloved. Yalamlam could also, um, but Yalamlam uh, is also uh, uh, a very important place in the Hajj ritual. It's one of the four Mikats, where uh, uh, one of the four places where people coming from four different directions uh, to the sacred territory of, of uh, Mecca stop uh, um, and take on these, the sacred clothes and the sacred, um, have their uh, haircut, etc., their fingernails, etc., and then take on the uh, sacred uh, uh, the sanctity that um, is uh, pre required to go into the haram area, the most sacred area in Mecca. So you'll see the, and Lalai is clearly one of the uh, classical stations. I find it back in early tradition. 
So here you see the, uh, the Yalamlam coming here in a seamless way. It doesn't call too much of attention to itself yet. And then um, there you'll find those you'd come to know, my fast is for them, my pilgrimage, my holy days. And now it would have been too long to get in my major pilgrimage uh, and my minor pilgrimage and etc. So I'll, I'll have to have a note. I'll have notes uh, to each poem explaining that the two pilgrimages here are the Hajj and the Etimar or the Umrah. Then Pebble Ground near Minna. So here's a place name, El Muhassab Min Minna. So El Muhassab um, is a place near Minna um, where people hurriedly gather pebbles uh, to later throw at um, these uh, pillars or mounds of stones, probably before that, um, uh, uh, the three different ones in the famous rite of the Hajj. Oblations field, that would be the field where they, the great sacrifice is carried out um, of, uh, of Eid al-Adha. Uh, and of course, Zamzam is the sacred spring that was opened up um, for uh, uh, Ismail's mother and Ismail when Ismail's mother was desperately seeking for water, running back and forth between seven hills, known as Hagar in the biblical tradition, um, not mentioned by name in the Quran, but whose, um, whose struggles are performed uh, in the Hajj. So here's both um, a, a bringing of this movement in time and space and recollection and loss and memory into um, the actual Hajj ritual and then taking the Hajj ritual and then interiorizing it um, um, in a very striking way, saying, um, their pebble ground, my heart, uh, their offerings field, my soul, their sacred spring, that would be the equivalent of Zamzam, my blood. And then when, when they come to Hajar, so uh, there's a medieval Arabic encyclopedia by um, uh, Yakut. And in the introduction to it, um, it's a geographical encyclopedia. It has all the, the place names of Arabia that he can find. He, in the introduction, he said, no one these days who writes anything will, will avoid evoking the stations of Zarud and Hajar. But then, strangely, he doesn't have a, an article on Hajar. Um, so here we have this powerful lyric poetry with its extraordinary mystical implications. But then it's also tied in to uh, a very compelling life story and um, a situation of trying to bring people, it brings us uh, into the nitty gritty, the spatial and 
temporal worlds of traveling to uh, the, uh, the Kaaba along these pilgrimage stations in Arabia. Every aspect of those stations was known and recalled. Um, and Hajar um, most likely was a station on the road uh, on the pilgrimage trail between Medina and Kufa, known as Zubaydah's Trail, because uh, Zubaydah, the wife of Harun al-Rashid, had really fixed up the trail for pil pilgrims and had set up cisterns along the way where people could get enough water to go for a day. And there are only about four places where you could get enough water to um, let your camels drink and really um, fill your water supplies. So uh, Hadjar would be right there in Nejd. And at the moment, people would go from the lowland areas um, of the Hejaz, and sometimes called Tehama, up to the highland areas. Uh, then there's this entire world of the fragrance of Nejd, the scent of Nejd, and the meaning of that scent of Nejd passed on by the east wind. All right, here goes the second one. So I just put down some of the information uh, here. Simone Fatal, Post Apollo Press, that's coming out, uh, God willing, sometime. Cover art by Atel Adnan. Um, there's the second one, the Locker Poetry and Translation. Uh, that's in process. And that gave me the subtitle for this talk, Strug Out Between uh, Nejd and Tiham. So um, uh, the reason I chose that subtitle is because a lot of Ibn Arabi's poetry uh, is talking about um, the beloved might be in the highlands or in the lowlands. If she's in the highlands, his heart is there. If she's in the lowlands, um, the word for highland is nejd. The word for lowland is often tiham. But there's a verb in Arabic, to go to the highland, anjada, or to go to the lowland, athama. And so how do you bring across these word plays? And how many word plays can you bring across in a translation? So if, you're, if the goal, as it is mine, is to make the translation uh, uh, read as poetry in English, occasionally challenge the reader with uh, something that is unanswered, but not to bombard the reader with technical words and parentheses, etc. Um, this is one of the fine lines that's co constantly being walked. So um, bewildered is, you could say, Tiham and um, the Locker series is uh, um, nedged. And all the things in between include, include how to deal with Ibn Arabi's prefaces, um, how much of the commentary to translate, decisions on form, couplets, uh, stanzas, how to transliterate. So I didn't use diacritical dots in the poetry part because most uh, 
uh, uh, uh, English readers will not know what a dot under an H means. Um, but I do use that in the notes and the critical apparatus because um, this is meant for both Arabic speaker slash readers and English speaker slash readers. And you want your one knowledge, the Arabic slash readers, to understand what you're doing, to see what you're doing, and to know what Arabic word is being represented. Um, uh, and at the same time, you want to give your English reader a word that they can imagine pronouncing and hear mentally, even if they're not reading it out loud. Um, and then that meant I used some uh, simple uh, accent aigus, um, accents, their stress accents, uh, just to indicate how we would um, pronounce the word in English, since we're not pronouncing it um, in Arabic precisely, uh, or with the Arabic kind of quantitative uh, metrics. Uh, now, the Raynal Nicholson volume of 1911, I think, is really um, uh, uh, one of the great works of scholarship of the early 20th century. Uh, and there, he has this introduction where it sounds, it's like a little bit of adab, Oxfordian adab. He says, adab being a form of uh, uh, culture uh, speech, not being pretentious, um, not over, over uh, selling one's case. He said, I, found, I had a friend who had a manuscript of this work by Ibn Arabi, and a couple of things attracted me to this project. One, it's short, and two, there was a manuscript there. Um, now, he also just happened to have selected a, a work of extraordinary importance. It was, a, it was only the second um, uh, print uh, Arabic uh, uh, edition or printing uh, in, in Europe. Uh, the other one being just a very small piece of Ibn Arabi's uh, essay on technical terms. Uh, he translated it really very carefully. I, I think just having gone back over it for years and years and years. And his translation, um, it's, you know, um, it has all kinds of things that I wish we could use today. Like, saith. Um, if you could say, saith and goeth, all those things, your rhythm and your metrics would be so e much easier. And the English has given them up but we, haven't, we don't have anything to substitute for, so it makes it a little harder. Um, but people don't uh, tend to read that kind of language anymore, and some of the younger generation is quite baffled by it. Um, he used three manuscripts uh, through uh, the Ibn Arabi Society and their, their, the extraordinary efforts of the Ibn Arabi Society to gather these manuscripts um, from around the world um, in digital form. I was able to get access to uh, seven, six or seven more. And uh, the 
Um, two of them are what Jane Clark and Stephen Hertenstein have called historic manuscripts. Um, that means even though we do not have a, a holograph, that is a, a manuscript written out in toto in Ibn Arabi's own personal hand, and even though we don't have a, a, an autograph, which means that the manuscript was written down uh, as part of a samat process, a hearing, a group of, you know, we call it a seminar, and then all the participants would sign at the end saying, I was here, and then Ibn Arabi would, would sign and say, I was here, I heard this read by so-and-so, and I testify that this is, um, uh, uh, this is, uh, uh, these are my words. Uh, we don't have either of those, but we have two really precious manuscripts. One of them is called Ragab Pasha. It's well done. It's vocalized all the way through, um, which means that all the vowels are put in, which is quite rare. It's written in a clear script. It has um, a copy of Ibn Arabi's uh, testimony of dated to around 617, in which he said, I was here when so-and-so, uh, uh, when this was read, and I authorized so-and-so to make uh, a copy off of my own manuscript um, uh, in connection with that. So that um, is what they call historic manuscript. We have hundreds of manuscripts from the uh, uh, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th century, but we only have a couple of these historic ones. Um, then we used, um, uh, there's a, a fabulously uh, careful uh, edition by Eshukairi in Arabic, um, um, published, I think, in, uh, in either Cairo or, or, or Syria around 1995. He uses five manuscripts from Dar al-Qutb, all of the, um, uh, around the um, uh, 16th century, and a, and a couple more uh, from Aleppo. And then we have um, uh, the whole question about, what do you do? Do you, do you want to bother readers with notes that say, this manuscript gives a different reading here, this gap? I'm, my decision was absolutely not under no considerate, um, because most of the readings are pretty much similar. Almost all of the differences are, are trivial. Um, a lot of them are based on simply mistakes, dropping diacritical marks. There's three really important things that I found that I wanted to mention. One is the poems 51 and 53 are not existing in most of the manuscripts we have, and that in the precious Raghav Pasha, they're, they're numbered in a strange way and put at the very end uh, of the manuscript. Two, the, the second poem, uh, the order of verses that Nicholson used uh, is a little puzzling. It's always been problematic for me as translator I use that in Stations of Desire. What I find is almost all of the manuscripts have a different order where they have a different final verse that really brings poem two together. And the third one, 
is that the famous poem um, that includes my heart be uh, became capable of every form, two verses um, are not in any of the manuscripts, uh, um, the older manuscripts. Those two verses, um, um, after uh, the poet says, um, hour by hour they circle my heart and touch my corners with a kiss, clearly the poet's voice now having become the Kaaba. Then there's two verses that say, as um, the best of creation, that is the Prophet Muhammad, um, uh, circled uh, uh, the Kaaba, even though reason with its proofs would call that unworthy. Um, and he was the Nautic, he was a Nautic, uh, you know, the one who, he had the voice, spoke the word, um, um, and what is um, uh, a, a building of stone compared uh, to a human being? Those two verses are not in any of the old manuscripts. So in Bewildered, I put them in parentheses. And in the new version, I'm going to um, have them in a note explaining that. How are we doing time-wise, oh, sages? It's one o'clock, but we can run a little bit longer because it's sound, it's not a hot meal. But so, not, not another 10 minutes? Oh, yeah. Five, well, 10 minutes. I'll wrap up, and um, if you'll give me a, a five when I'm at five. <laughs> All right? There are other Tarjumans. So when one says you're going to translate to Tarjuman, the first question is, great, which Tarjuman? So there's the Tarjuman, which are the poems by themselves. There's the Tarjuman with the preface of um, the Lady at the Kaaba. There's another Tarjuman with the famous preface of Nizam, the young woman that uh, Ibn Arabi dedicates the poems to, that he meets in when he first comes to Mecca, um, uh, who's the uh, daughter of, uh, of a famous uh, scholar and the niece of a famous uh, scholar, uh, his sister from Isfahan. She represents, uh, in the, throughout the volume, um, the quintessence of Persia, um, the quintessence of the Ajam, uh, uh, those who do not speak Arabic. And there's this kind of Love affair between office, opposites going throughout the Tarjuman al-Ashwaq between the East and the West, the West being the Arab, the East being the Persian. How can the two ever meet? Um, and kind of a triumph over that logic of mutual contradiction. So um, uh, that, um, and then there's the commentary. And the commentary starts out, um, as some of you may know, by uh, friends of Ibn Arabi, dear friends, saying, oh, some people in Aleppo are criticizing your verses. They say something you said about them really being about all the subtleties of ma'arif, of knowings, uh, um, uh, or gnosis, uh, or uh, that, that you just said that because you like to write 
Russell and Nassib love poetry, and you're a big sheikh, so you wanted to explain it away. So then um, Ibn al-Arabi says, so with their, at their urging, I wrote this commentary. Um, so here we have two opposite complaints. The lady at the Kaaba says, you don't know what real love is because your, your love is not passionate enough. And then this uh, sheikh says, you're getting it too far into this love stuff. Um, um, you're supposed to be talking about uh, abstruse theological matters. So um, there's a lot of different tarjumanalish uh, walks. And when we translate the poems, how do we take all that into consideration? The commentary is extraordinarily rich. It can often tell us um, you know, what kind of word the poet had in mind. Um, my own uh, theory is that Ibn al-Arabi says throughout uh, that commentary, throughout uh, these other works, Muhadarat al-Abrar, which is an astonishing work by Ibn al-Arabi, that includes 40 of these poems, hundreds of other poems, stories, hadith, etc., and this, um, this uh, um, amazing uh, new work that's been shown um, uh, by uh, Julian Cook, Stephen Hertenstein, Claude Doss, and others um, to um, likely include a large amount of Ibn Arabi's poetry that was not in the Diwan that was published in Egypt. And in it, he constantly uses the phrase before each set of verses, this was the occasion, this was um, the spirit, the movement of the spirit, and this was the hearing, esama. So my sense of that work is that every poem comes out of a specific occasion, a specific dynamic factor, um, and that when Ibn Arabi comments on his own poems, which he does not only in the commentary but throughout these other works, he's often commenting upon the particular moment, occasion, spirit that, uh, that is upon him at the moment. There's one wonderful point where he says about um, uh, the word arwah in um, the poem that um, uh, Stefan Sprill is going to talk to us about. Um, that the arwah rustled in the trees and, um, and passed me away, um, that, um, the, uh, that this word can be the plural of ruh, spirit, or the plural of ri, wind. And he says, the poet meant winds. If he had meant spirits, no, it's a poet meant spirits. If he had meant winds, this is what he would have meant. Now, um, you know, maybe that's his moment at the moment he's commenting, but if he knows what he would have meant if he, used, if he meant the other, it makes the whole issue of, um, uh, of the, this moment and, and how, to, how to take commentaries very interesting. Um, five. So, um, in the process, of translating, I ended up um, reading Muhadarat al-Abrar because I'm using those 40 poems as part of the 
like manuscripts, another version, another way that Ibn Arabi testifies to those poems, and the same with Diwan of Ma'arif. In Muhadarat al-Abrar, I found what I think is a clue to the question that's long puzzled me, which is, where did this kind of poetry at the beginning of the 13th century uh, common era that Ibn Lofarid, Ibn al-Arabi, and another poet uh, known as Shustari, some call him the Rumi of North Africa, where did this kind of poetry that mixes nasib and longing with hajj, and longing for the hajj, longing to be back at the hajj, remembering every moment at the hajj, where did it come from? Um, and people have speculated that, you know, that, uh, but it, there has never been, to my knowledge, anything. What I found was that Muhadarat al-Abrar, the poets, the two most poets, uh, cited poets, are Mihyara Dalami and Sharif Aradi. They were both Shiites. They both lived in Baghdad. They both had positions as Naqib of the Hajj. They led Hajj pilgrimages. Their poetry, their, much of their poetry, is steeped in the Hajj. And Sharif Aradi had a, has a collection which has been put together called Hijaziyat, which are uh, this kind of poetry, without the different kind of moods and voices of Ibn Arabi, uh, about the Hajj, longing for the Hajj, longing for each station of the Hajj, the, hu the stations of the Hajj being the stations of the beloved, etc. And one step back further, um, Ibn Jawzi, also from Baghdad, um, a Hanbali scholar, has a book on the Hajj, called a Tagreed, um, which sets out to inflame people's passion for going on the Hajj. And it's filled with this kind of poetry. And, and many of the poems in there are the ones that Ibn Arabi cites um, from the Hijaziyat um, and others. So it, um, one of the senses is that these poems don't come out of anywhere. They're steeped in a classical tradition. Um, of course, they brilliantly resonate with Ibn Arabi's mystical philosophy, um, uh, but they don't announce it directly very often in the poems. And uh, the, my conclusion is there's a reason that many poets did not announce that directly in the, poem, in the poems, and it has to do with the fact that their, their sense is that, that Shalk, this almost infinite longing, um, is um, a cosmic force. Henri Corbin wrote about it as the cosmological force that created the universe and um, brings all back to its creator. That this cosmic longing, um, if, if one starts to divide it up between sacred and profane, between his, did, did, he re was he really with a woman there, or a man, or was, is this all a symbol? Then it, 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 it loses its sense that Schalk cannot be divided up into uh, simple categories of above and below, a transcendent and in the world. So thank you all for this um, talk, and thank you for 
um, my 10-minute uh, dispensation. <laughs>